Well, good morning. Welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is Matthew, one of the elders here. Grateful that God's brought us together this morning. Uh, as we get started here, I have some books to give away. Uh, this is a book by Tony Ranke, and it's called Competing Obstacles, Treasuring Christ in a Media Age. It says this on the back. It says, what images should I feed my eyes? We often leave this question unanswered because we don't ask it. Maybe we don't want to ask it, but viral videos, digital images, and other spectacles surround us in every direction, competing for our time, our attention, our lust, and our money. So we let our lazy eyes feed on whatever comes our way, and as a result, we never stop to consider the consequences of our visual diet on our habits, desires, and longings. So this is a book that I commend to you. It's a new book by Tony Ranke. I have three of them. If you'd like one, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. <laughs> Come on, get it, Nate. One for Nate, one for Krista, and one for Stephen. I've got more in my office, Joe. Come see me after. So we continue our series today, uh, Life in the Spirit. We've spent several weeks since February, so maybe 10 or 12 weeks or so, uh, giving expositions through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. And these passages have been particularly talking about the manifestation of the Holy Spirit through gifts. Paul says that every Christian has a gift from the Holy Spirit that manifests the Holy Spirit's presence. But this morning, we sort of switch gears a little bit as we continue this series, and I want to start by telling you something that might be a bit surprising to you about the Bible's presentation of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and that is this. That 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is a chapter all about the manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming in the form of empowerments for believers to edify each other. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is not the chapter that mentions in the Bible that mentions the Holy Spirit the most. In fact, the chapter in the Bible that mentions the Holy Spirit more than any other chapter in the entire New Testament is Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 mentions the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ some 17 times in one chapter. And so as we continue this series, we're turning our eyes and our attention to Romans chapter 8 to better understand the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. And to start our series this morning, I invite our brother Josue to come up and he's going to read to us, actually he's going to recite for us Romans chapter 8 from memory. Hello? All right. Uh, This is the book of Romans, chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit have their minds set On the things of the Spirit. Now, the mindset of the flesh is death, 
But the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated by the flesh to live according to the flesh because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption for whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, But we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who were called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, Who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but 
offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 8. Well, let's pray for the reading of God's word and for our hearing and exposition of it. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you, God, that you've given us your so very powerful and ultimate word. We pray, Lord, that we would be built up and encouraged by it. We pray that every heart would rest in the hope of Jesus Christ that is so present in this text. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and do your work and illuminate this text to us. Help me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin here, it's important, and one of Paul's main points here, by a slightly further introduction, is that if you are a Christian, that means you've received the Holy Spirit, and that means the Holy Spirit actually resides within you. That the Holy Spirit has actually taken up residence inside you. We heard in chapter 8, verses 9 to 11... It says that, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Paul can't be more emphatic about his point here, that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within you. I don't know what you've conceived of the Holy Spirit in the past. He's not some kind of green mist that comes down from the moon. The King James Version will refer to him as the Holy Ghost, which might be difficult and hard for us to to think about. I don't know what you think about when you think of the Holy Spirit, but when you think about the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, he is God, and Paul in this passage uses phrases synonymously. He says in those two verses, that three verses that we read, that he's the Spirit. He's the Spirit of God. He's the Spirit of Him. He's Christ. And they're all the same. They're terms that are used radically interchangeably. And this is not some kind of modalism of sorts, but it's actually showing the closeness of the relationship between each of them. It is to say that God Himself, not just an emanation of God, but God Himself is dwelling in you. 
And it's a sense that Paul's saying you can't have one without having the others. When one comes, they all come. When the Spirit comes to you, so comes the Father and the Son with the Spirit. God dwells in you if you're a Christian. So let's take up this profound reality that God has come to take up residence in us, which is absolutely astounding. And let's take it up in three points as we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And point one is verses one to two, no condemnation. One to two, no condemnation. It's important uh, to see uh, a key verse in Paul's argument up to this place in Romans chapter eight. I'm going to try to summarize the greatest letter that's ever been written in the history of the world in about three sentences, which is always probably a pretty stupid thing to do, but here goes. There's a key verse in understanding a lot of what Paul's argument is up to this, up to this point, and it's in Romans chapter 3. It's a hinge verse of sorts, and he says in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, he says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. Here it is. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. By works of the law, no human being will be justified before God. And then he goes on to say in verse 324, he says, We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So verse 320 says no one is justified by the works of the law. In verse 324, he says that all are justified by his grace as a gift, and that's amazingly great and good news. We are made right with God through his gift to us. We are made right with God through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. No one will be justified by works of the law. You will never be made right with God by a particular obedience to his law. You were only made right with God by the grace that is yours and the redemption that is yours in Jesus Christ. This is the conclusion where we're at in 8.1 of his argument. The first part of Romans chapter 7, Paul's been telling us that there is a tendency for all of us to be our own masters. And we do it so often in oftentimes one of two ways. We either do it by obeying all the rules or we do it by shrugging off all the rules. We either do it by saying, forget God, forget this whole religious thing. This is my life, my rules, my playbook. Religion is oppressive and restrictive and so on. And this is being your own master. But there is a religious way to do it too. There's a religious way to seek to justify yourself. We can seek to justify ourselves by seeking to obey all the rules. And by doing so, we psychologically put God in our debt. We figure that we can control our circumstances and situations and outcomes simply by obeying. But what evidently, inevitably happens in this broken and fallen world as things don't go the way we planned or expected. And obedience doesn't necessarily mean things will always go the way that we thought they should. 
under the sun in a broken world, kids don't turn out the way that we thought they would. We don't get the promotion that we probably deserved in our own thinking. Our spouse doesn't respect us the way that we think they should after all that we've done for them. And we grow bitter. We grow bitter at other people, but ultimately I think we grow bitter at God. We grow bitter at God because we think we have put in X, Y, and Z, A and B and C, therefore I deserve the other side of the coin. We've sought to put God in our debt. We've sought to justify ourselves by works of the law. One of the places where this is so clear, these two different ways, is in the parable of the two sons in Luke 15. And maybe you've conceived and thought of this story before as the parable of the prodigal son, but you must realize to understand the point that's being made is this story is about two different sons. This is the parable of two sons, each of them trying to be their own master, each of them trying to make a name for themselves, each of them seeking to justify themselves. And the younger son, of course, does it by shrugging off all the rules and running away, taking his father's inheritance, his father's money, and seeking to make, to justify himself by shrugging off all responsibility, the commander and the master of his own destiny. But the older brother, he does it. He seeks to justify himself by staying and obeying all the rules. And when the other, younger brother finally comes back and the grace of the father is so lavish on the son, he puts a robe on him, he puts a ring on his finger, he kills the fattened calf, and the older brother is deeply bitter. I was here the whole time. I've been seeking to justify myself by the obey, obedience to the rules, to the law. Why does he get all the lavish mercy and grace? The tale of two sons. He refuses to go to his brother's party. But don't you see? It's the same issue with both sons. It's different sides of the coin. They both love their father for his money. And that's the religious way we become our own master. We don't really want God. We don't really want his benefits. We, don't, we, we, we want the goods we want our lives to go the way we think they should. And we think that we can justify ourselves and force the hand of God. But do you see how profoundly evil both of these ways are? They're self-centered. They're self-absorbed. They're self-concerned. They're self-centered. They're self-absorbed. They're self-concerned. And God won't have it. And the very reason... I would suggest something pretty significant here. The very reason God doesn't give us what we want in a religious form of justifying ourselves is because God knows what we truly need. And he knows that we need him and him alone. He will not have us be older brothers seeking to justify ourselves. Because the idol's of the heart, whether they're religious or irreligious, liberal or conservative, older brother or the younger brother, they will never satisfy you. They will always overpromise what they can give and underdeliver on its return. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law I'm dipping it a bit into point two, but just to, to illustrate this. The law was not weak in itself. 
The law is not weak in itself. The weakness that the law experienced came from us. It was weakened, weakened by the flesh. Do you realize that's how wicked we actually are? We are capable of weakening it. So we're left then with the question. This argument that Paul's been making in Romans chapter 7, he's talking about this deep splitness within us, this war that wages within us, this desire to do the right thing and yet we don't do it. He's talking about these religious and irreligious ways in which we seek to justify ourselves about God. So what is Paul's final word on this? What's his final word to this profound wickedness and evil, this propensity to be our own masters, this propensity to justify ourselves? What's the verdict? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the final word. The final word is that if you are in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Everything that he's just described in the fallenness of humanity, he's saying, in light of all that, if you're in Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation. And that word in the Greek, to break down a little bit, is katakrino, which means a judgment against. It's a judicial word. It's a legal term. It's a word that speaks to the liability of something. You are in debt to God. You are in a state of your estrangement because of your rebellion against God. You are liable. But it is all removed in Jesus Christ. There is no more estrangement. There is no more liability. You are absolutely free if you are found in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation. That's saying, you realize what this is saying? That though you are capable of wrong, you're capable of wrongdoing, you're capable of wickedness, Jesus will even tell his disciples in Luke chapter 11 when he's teaching them to pray. He says, talking about their, their, their desires for their children, you who are evil, you desire good things for your children. He's talking to the 12 that he loves. He's talking to those that have been walking with him all those years and this sort of, on this kind of off-the-cuff cursory mark, he says, you're evil, you know. You're evil. You're wicked. But in regard to God, there's no condemnation. As you sit there right now, you are simultaneously a sinner and a saint. If you're a Christian, you are simultaneously capable of wrong. You simultaneously still have a propensity to do wrong at times. But in regard to God, he sees you. As not one who's condemned, he sees you as one who's been pronounced to be free. It's a judicial, judicial pronouncement. I need to belabor the point just a minute longer. This word no, if you're looking at the Greek text, it doesn't just mean, it's emphatic. It doesn't just mean that for the moment there is no condemnation. It means no longer ever again will there be condemnation. It's gone. It's not yours. It's never, ever, ever, ever going to be yours again. This, this, this means the sense of, 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 of now. It was like trying to give an illustration. Our kids had a birthday party. I can't remember whose party it was. Maybe it was my brother's son birthday party, and anytime there's a, a pinata, okay, at a kid's birthday party, man, you are rolling the dice on just a whole lot of dangerous things, okay? You're going to blindfold a 10-year-old boy, and you're going to give him a bat, you're going to spin him in a circle, and you're going to say, I want you to try to hit the thing above your head as hard as possible so that you get a bunch of candy. Just back up and steer clear. 
in that scenario. But the expectation of it, the kids always ask, now, 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 now. And when you finally say now, man, that bat goes a flying and you better be behind a tree or something. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying now. Now, now there is no condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ. It is like your parents giving you an inheritance check early. This is all going to be yours someday, so you can have it now. You can have it now. No condemnation. Nothing in your past, nothing in your present, nothing in your future will ever bring you into judgment against God if you are in Jesus Christ. Nothing. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Without the truth of this verse, I think many of us, if if the reality of this verse really set in, and the reality of Paul's teaching here, that you are capable of wicked, Jesus, can you hear Jesus saying to you, you're evil? If 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 it sunk in, without the truth of this verse, I think we'd be crippled. Without the reality of this verse, how could we continue on each day? If your failures marked you, and your failures were, and your 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 past decisions and thought life, even of the last seven days, were what kept you in right standing with God, I know I'd be toast. I'd be done. But God did what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God did it. Do you see the massive new identity that this gives a person? The massive new identity that this gives a person. Can you imagine a more freeing statement and a more freeing reality to say, your standing before me is not based on what you do forever. We were talking last night at the uh, parenting, the, the family room seminar, And one of the things that came up is we made the comment that our children need something that we ultimately can't give them. As much as we love our children, as much as we our our love is unconditional from our perspective towards them, they need something that we ultimately can't give them. They need an unending, never stopping unconditional love that we ourselves fail at as fallen human beings to give them. They need to be shown the love and grace and mercy and unconditional love of Jesus Christ for them. And when we realize that, we realize that we need the same exact thing ourselves. We need a love, an unconditional love, a mercy, a grace that our parents couldn't give us either. As great of parents as they were, There's that place in Isaiah 45 when it says, can a nursing mother forget? You think the rhetorical is no. But the writer says, can a nursing mother forget? Even she will forget. She'll she'll grow old. She'll maybe have dementia. She'll maybe have Alzheimer's. But at the end, she'll die. He says, but I will not forget you. For you engraved on my hands. We need a profound love where there is no condemnation because of the unconditional love of another person, another entity. And if you're a Christian, that's yours in Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, you need this. If you're not a Christian, you're still at enmity with God. 
You're apart from the commonwealth, the common grace of what it is to be numbered in the church, to be a saint, to be a Christian. But his gift is offered to you in Jesus. The apostle said, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, which simply means to repent, to turn of the life that you've been living, to even turn of the good things in which you've sought to be a self-salvation project, the good ways in which you've sought to justify yourself, to lay that deadly doing down and to turn in faith and trust in Jesus Christ and embrace and accept his justification, his forgiveness of sins and the right standing with God that he offers. That's point one. (laughs) That's no condemnation. Which gives us a completely new freedom and a completely new identity. A new understanding of ourselves. To be honest with ourselves. To be honest with the depths and crevices of our hearts. One thing I've noticed, I think many of you have noticed, and the testimonies I've heard is that that part of what it is to be a Christian and walking with Jesus for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years is also a simultaneous understanding of how wicked we actually are. The capability of our own hearts. But that is, this is my old analogy. I haven't brought up in years, so bear with me. Everybody already knows what I'm going to say. It's the double jump on the trampoline. You know, when you double jump, you go down farther than you have before, but simultaneously you're raised higher than you ever were before. If you have the gospel, if Romans 8.1 has trickled down from your brain and melted down to your heart, then when you are shown the reality of your sin, it doesn't cause you to react and get bitter and angry. It's, I am the chief of sinners, and Jesus Christ loved me and died for me. So point two is to set our hearts. Verses three to 11. And I think what we get in point two and what we set our hearts on and set our minds on, is more the explicit language there, is that we get a a, a new method to change. We have resources to actually grow and change. The resources that he'll say here in a moment that the world gives us of setting our mind on things of the flesh leads to death. The resources of a self-salvation project and seeking to justify ourselves either by casting off the law or seeking to obey all the rules, he says that path, that road leads to death. It is not a real path to change. It is not a real method for us. So let's look at the text and see what it tells us. Verses 4 and 5. He says, In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and it's peace. What does he mean? What does he mean by setting the mind on the things of the flesh? By flesh, what Paul means here, and you have to trace his argument through the whole book, He doesn't necessarily mean our physical bodies or our our skeletons or our our physical mass or even our appetites or our instincts. What he means is the whole endeavor of our fallenness. The whole of the person viewed as corrupt 
and unredeemed. One scholar put it like this in his commentary that he called it our fallen, egocentric human nature. Another called it the sin-dominated self. But Martin Luther probably said it best, the 16th century reformer. He said that the flesh and the human nature is, quote, deeply curved in on itself. It's deeply curved in on ourself. Our, Our flesh is our twisted human nature. And its desires and all the things it wants for is for this self-centered, self-appreciating end. To set the mind, as John Murray says, is to make something the, the, the absorbing object of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. So to set the mind, to repeat that, I was a little unclear. To set the mind, we're not talking about its object necessarily, but the act of setting the mind, John Murray says, is the absorbing object of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. What consumes your imagination? What consumes your thought? What is the aim, what is the telos of your thinking and your life's direction? And Paul's saying that there is a way in which we set our minds on the things of the flesh, things that are self-absorbed, things that are self-interested. And he said that path, what consumes the thoughts, the interests, the affections, the purposes, that is death. So the question that Paul's driving us toward is the mindset on Jesus Christ and all of his purposes for us and all of his promises for us that are bound up in the Father and in the unity of the Spirit, is our mind set on that or is it set on something else? Are our minds consumed with chapter 8, verse 1, that we belong to Jesus? Is our mind consumed with 8, 3, that God did what the law weakened by the flesh could not do? You know, we oftentimes see this. You ask the question, how do we know what our minds are set on? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Let me tell you. Oftentimes, oftentimes we know what our hearts and minds are set on. And let me just say this. When I say heart and mind, the Bible is not, when the Bible talks about mind and heart, they're talking about the center of one's emotions, the center of one's beings. It's not necessarily just talking about a thought process. It's talking about the controlling and ruling apparatus within somebody. So, so how do we know what that controlling thing is? Oftentimes, it comes to us through times of suffering. It oftentimes becomes clear to us what is our functional savior, our functional idol, what our hearts or minds are set on in times of sorrow, in times of setback, in times of disappointment, in times of loss, in times of failures, in times of unmet expectations and hopes. In times of crushed dreams. In those moments, we can begin to see what our hearts truly find its rest in. For some of us, it's our reputation. When our reputation is tarnished, when 
the, 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 the status that we have with other people is tarnished. It, it just grates us in a profound level. For some of us, it's financial security. And when that comes into question, then we find that we've set our hope on it. Some of us, it's the status of relationships. And when people are mad at you, you're a non-confrontational type. When people are mad at you or things are upset, you're just at odds with yourself. It can manifest itself in being anxious about situations. Manifests itself in being sleepless in situations. It can manifest itself in being gossiping in situations and trying to subtly undermine someone's opinion of you or someone else's thoughts about you. It manifests itself, sin manifests itself in a multitude of ways. So what we need to learn to do, we need to learn to route out our own self-salvation projects. What it is for me is different than it is for you. It is different from the person sitting next to you. Which means that we need to learn to repent, not just of an action, but the motive behind the action. Not just repent of being anxious, but to repent of what is the thing that's making, what is the heart, what is the mind set on? That's causing us to react that way. Because to continue to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to learn to set the mind on the spirit to say, well, forgive me for being so concerned about financial security or the outcome of the children or how this meeting is going to go tomorrow. Instead, I, I, I repent of that and I turn faith and trust to you. I know that if, if God is for me, if you are for me, who can be against me? Who can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? There's no condemnation for me. It's a new method. It's a new way to change to what you're setting your mind on. But so often what we do is we do a couple things. One is that I'll apply it in the way that we counsel other people. Oftentimes we work directly on people's will. Someone comes to us in a maybe a, maybe a man has come to you and he's and he's lost his job, and so we focus on the will and we say, like, you know, buck up. Come on. Get it? It's gonna, you know, just. You, go, you need to get the drive and you need to do it. Or we focus on the emotions and we commiserate with people. No, 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 both of these things aren't necessarily wrong to do. I'm not condemning them, but they're not the ultimate thing to do. Do we work on the heart? Do we talk about where the seat of this person's affections, their, the, the, the thing that makes them tick, the thing that gives them life and being and the thing that makes life satisfying to them? practical application as we continue to grow and mature as a congregation and you're spending time in your community groups and you're spending time in your triads and you're you're meeting one another for coffee and dinner and having each other over we need to learn to speak this kind of language to one another to ask the question you someone that is so good at it is is my friend jason orth who is an elder of this church a couple years back he's so good when you bring your problems to him, you bring your struggles, your concerns, one of the things that he always says to me is, why does it matter? Why does it matter? You have the king of the universe has given himself for you. Why, why are you worried about it? And there's a way that's kind of even irritating when he does it, because you're like, okay, I know. Can't you just cry with me for a minute? But he's getting at what is the heart set on. Is the heart set on the flesh because that's only going to lead to death? Or is the heart 
is the mind set on the spirit, which is life, which is peace. Life and peace. Do we have that kind of peace? The peace that Jesus promised to us. Peace is at being within inner integration with oneself. Shalom. There's wholeness, there's completeness. Things are at rest in the way that they should be. And we're going to struggle with this. We're going to struggle with this till Jesus comes back or we die and go be with him. Because we're still broken human beings that are being redeemed because of his finished work for us. We'll never achieve that full inner peace, that shalom where things should be as they are until we see him face to face. But he gives glimpses of heaven to us. The Holy Spirit is a gift to us, residing within us to remind us everything that Jesus said to us. That's what Jesus promised in John 14 through 17, that the Holy Spirit would come and he would lead us and guide us and bring to our remembrance the things that Jesus taught. So part of the work of the Spirit, to conclude this point, part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to assure us of our standing before God is to assure us of our standing before God. The Holy Spirit's job is to stir up within you reminders of who God is for you in Jesus Christ. Let me just add one more point as we close this section. Do you see the reality of verses 9 to 11? In order to have this new uh, uh, method of dealing with this nature that we struggle with, in order to do it, we must first be converted. We must first have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to come to us first and make us gods before we have any of the resources that are available to us in 3 through 11. Look at he says it. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Man, that's amazing. That's the promised new life. That's the promised new birth. That's the promise of conversion. That as the Holy Spirit comes in, he quickens a dead soul Someone who's at enmity and apart from God and makes them alive to God through Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The first thing that the Holy Spirit does to you. And then he comes to live and reside in you. And that's life. Life is to have the Holy Spirit. So let's move on to our third point. Verses 12 to 13. Mortify the flesh. Mortify the flesh. Verse 8.13. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Hmm. If what we've been previously talking about, we could call, uh, we could call justification that God has justified us before himself because of the work of Jesus. Our positional standing is righteousness. We've received the righteousness of Christ. What we could call verses 12 to 13 is sanctification. So 
Justification is positional righteousness. Sanctification is growing in actual righteousness. Sanctification is growing in actually becoming more like Jesus, becoming more holy, becoming more like him. And one of the things that Paul gives us here is he gives us two promises of assurance in this passage. Number one, the promises of assurance, is that you've got the Holy Spirit. You're justified by God. There is no condemnation. But the second promise of assurance is that you actually will grow in sanctification. You actually will grow in Christ's likeness. The word here, put to death, is a strong word. In the Greek, it literally means to kill. It's a violent term. The King James renders it mortify. We don't think of mortify that way anymore. We think of mortify as to embarrass or something. But it most literally means, in Old English, to put in the mortuary. Mortify means to put in the mortuary. It's a violent term, but it's a very appropriate term if we are going to take Paul serious on the nature of our flesh. If we're going to take sin seriously, we, is, we understand a need for such a violent term. In light of this deep splitness within us, this profound wickedness and humanness, this per, in evil rather, the propensity to be our own master, pulse gives us a violent term like kill. And he involves us in the process. If it was just a passive work of the Spirit alone, then we wouldn't be exhorted in verse 13. But if you, by the Spirit, ellipsis, you will live. The paradox of 8.13 is, is interesting. On the one hand, killing sin is that something that Paul says we must do. We must do. You put to death the deeds of the body. But on the other hand, he says, you do it by the Spirit. (laughs) He says, we put to death the deeds of the body. He says, you do it by the Spirit. So how do we do that? How do we mortify? How do we wield this tool that we're given in 3 to 8? 3 to 11, rather. How do we actually mortify the flesh. Well, I alluded to it a moment ago, but I'm going to give more specific application. What do we set our minds on? Jesus says what changes us is the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26, the helper of the Holy Spirit will come, whom the Father will send in my name, and he will teach you and bring all things to your remembrance, the things that I have said to you. And I'm going to apply this to us, this, to us like this. Um, John Owen says, it is no other work of the Holy Spirit, but to apply to us all the graces and good works which are ours in him. And one of the ways that Vanessa and I have done that over the years is that we have amassed, we've gathered, we have places in the scriptures that speak to us God's love for us in Jesus Christ. And you need to be building, young people in particular, building your own tool chest, the places where God's Spirit reminds you and stirs up within you the grace that is yours in Jesus Christ. I'll just give you a few examples. One for us is meditating on the story of Abraham and Isaac. That God promised Abraham when he was to sacrifice his son, that when he got up there, there was a lamb waiting for them in a thicket. That he didn't actually have to crucify his own son, but there was a lamb waiting in the thicket. 
And the voice from heaven says to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. But of course, you know, that reminds us of that many years later, another son would climb a mountain and he would climb a hill, but there would not be a ram in the thicket because he was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And now the pronouncement isn't God down, it's us to him. Now we know you love us because you did not withhold your only son from us. Even the titles for Jesus stir up our hearts and my hearts. The man of sorrows, that he's the friend of sinners, that he's the suffering servant, that he's the savior king. Sometimes I just need those words to remind me, to stir up within me, to set my minds, to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Psalm 16 is a place we go. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Sometimes I just need to re-listen to John Piper's sermon from 20 years ago, Don't Waste Your Life. And remember the profound grace that is ours in Jesus. Sometimes I need to read Jonathan Edwards' sermons on heaven being a world of love. Where he describes heaven as the place where Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace and Love, who so loved the world that he shed his blood and poured out his soul unto death, there he dwells in both his nature, his human and divine, sitting with the Father in the same throne. That place where we will go to be with him when he comes to consummate the heavens and the earth. Or Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you have those? It's the work, he says, It's our task to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Setting our mind not on past performance, not setting our mind in mustering up the willpower to do the right thing, though we need to do the right thing, but it's setting our mind on what Jesus Christ has done for us, that all of God's promises to us are yes and amen because of what Jesus has done. And that's how you mortify the flesh. You mortify your flesh by remembering and reminding yourself of that unconditional love that we so long to give to our children, but we can't. But we can show them as beggars looking for bread, as those who are thirsty looking for the fount of living water, that we found it. Because there is one in whom we can have unconditional love, acceptance, grace, meaning, satisfaction, security, comfort, and control. If we lay our deadly doing down, lay it at his feet and cling to him and him alone, let us pray.